So with your Bible over at uh, Psalm 83, let me help you understand something before we get into uh, this particular dynamic of this psalm. And it relates to the overall big picture and, if you will, the meta-narrative of the Bible. You see, there's a, a big picture theme that weaves its way all the way through the Old and New Testament that really, in order to understand Psalm 83, you have to understand what this meta-narrative or this big picture story of the Bible is. It goes something like this, that God, in his infinite wisdom, created the world. And uh, he created it good, without sin, without any deficiency whatsoever. So that's creation. Secondly, what happened is the fall happened. By that, sin entered the world. Adam and Eve ate of the tree that God had told them not to. As a result, sin came in the world. And the effect of that on creation was cataclysmic in its nature and scope. Evil came into the world. Death came. Conflict. All sorts of bad and aberrant behaviors began to happen on planet Earth. And this fall has caused the earth to to come underneath the judgment and the penalty of sin. The Bible then tells us that in God's infinite and gracious mercy, he sent Jesus to be the payment, the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. So it moves from creation to fall to redemption. Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, takes upon us his sin, or or our sin rather, takes upon himself our sin, and provides a way for us to be, be, be made right with this creator. Meaning... That for a particular moment in time during your lifetime and before Jesus comes again, there's a window of opportunity for someone to receive Jesus as their Savior. And when that happens, God creates a new person within you. There's a rebirth, a born again is how Jesus described it with Nicodemus. So something new happens within you. A renewal takes place within your heart and soul. However, this is the foretaste, this internal renewal of what's to come in the future. And that's the last thing in this meta narrative, this notion called consummation, which means that one day God will take everything that's wrong with the world and make it completely right. He will restore his reign, his rule, his authority. He'll take all of the sin, remove it, cast the devil into the lake of fire, and God will come and we will be with him and he will be our God for all of eternity. It will be the reverse of the fall. It will bring us back to the way things were in the Garden of Eden. So that's the meta narrative of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The challenge is, is that we live right now between redemption and consummation. Meaning that we could receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior to have our sins forgiven, but we still live in a sin-cursed world. For that matter, we live between two worlds. We live between a world where Jesus has initiated the possibility of wholeness to be brought back to a person's heart. At the same time, we long for the day when that wholeness, God to restore everything, will happen in a global and universal scale. Imagine no sin, no death, no pain, no devil. What a day that will be. And right now, we live between those two worlds. The effect of this means that while we live on earth, there are always going to be bad things that happen, hardships that will come, evil will exist. And I can imagine that you, like me, often look at the world in which we live and have this thought. Evil is winning. You see how culture begins to decay. You see the moral slide of what's happening around us. And there are times when it's overwhelming where you feel like, you know what, evil is winning. Or maybe it's on a personal level. You feel like the devil got a foothold in a son or a daughter's life and the sweet little child has now gone far, far, far away. Or maybe it's one thing after another. A marriage that blows up. Someone you find out is addicted. 
someone who's um, done something really horribly immoral, and all these things add up, and you just look at life, and you go, what in the world is happening? There's a longing within you to have this change, to have God make it all right again, but you're caught between two worlds, these two worlds that make you, if you know Jesus and love God's glory, say things like, this can't be. This, this can't be like this. So the question that Psalm 83 really addresses is this. So when life looks really bad, evil begins to increase. It seems as though evil is winning. What do you say in moments like that? Because the reality is, evil does at times appear to be winning. The devil does appear to be having a field day. And whether it's individually or globally or at a national level, we need to know how to think and process these moments of life when it seems as though evil is having a field day. So we're in the middle of this series on the Psalms. We've already looked at a number of Psalms. Psalm 1 showed us two paths. Psalm chapter 8 displayed the majesty of God and then his mercy. He set his glory above the heavens and then the psalmist David says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 9 linked praise to the past so that you could have trust in the crucible, remembering God's events that he has done in our past. Psalm 9 showed us the, um, um, excuse me, Psalm 34 rather, showed us that close call moments, these these moments where God delivers us, helps us to see life differently. And then Psalm 83 today is really based upon this principle. And this is what we're going to talk about all day. It's that loving God's glory makes you long for righteousness to flourish. The reverse is also true, that loving God's glory makes your heart ache when it seems as though evil is winning. And so the question that we need to really wrestle and think about this morning is this. When you look at the world and you see it going bad, what do you say? What do you say to God? What do you say to your own soul? And the psalmist Asaph is going to help us today understand how to think about not just our lives, but even taking a step beyond our lives, thinking about culture. So first, Psalm 83 begins with a spiritual groan. This is where he expresses the ache of his heart. It's as though the psalmist Asaph reaches a point where he can no longer contain what he is feeling, that his frustration um, with the way that culture is, what he sees around him just reaches a fever pitch, and so therefore he begins to say some things to God. Look at verse 1. He says this, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. So he says really the same thing in three different ways. Do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. All of these, he's asking God to act. It's as though he's saying to God, God, delay no longer. He knows what it's like to live in a world filled with evil. And he's emotionally wrestling with God's silence. I was thinking about this again, just kind of fresh and new this morning, that it it dawned on me that, You know, most of human history, God is silent. Well, he speaks at various seasons, and he's spoken to us through his word, and not the least of which through his son. But more often than not, God is silent. And so therefore, it behooves us to understand how we ought to think and how we ought to pray in those moments when God is silent. In fact, those overwhelming number of moments when it seems as though evil is moving along and God is doing nothing. The psalmist Asaph here sees the swelling flood of evil and he longs for God to do something. He longs for God to come. And so he talks to God 
He prays. He longs for God to act. He's appealing for God to help him, to help their culture, to help the nation of Israel. Not unlike some of you maybe grew up watching Western movies, and when it was really dark and really difficult, and it seemed as though everything was going wrong, then you long for what to come. The cavalry, right? Don't say Calvary. You long for the cavalry. Now this morning, uh, the first service, I did the little trumpet blast, and then someone afterwards told me I did the wrong trumpet blast. So I think the trumpet blast for the cal- cavalry is... No, that's revelry. What is it? Come on, someone give it to me. Oh, good. You don't know it either. Okay, cool. So that's all right. Yeah. So afterwards, this guy stood right here and he gave it to me. I was like, great, I got to remember that, but I can't remember what it was. You know the song, the, the, the sound with the trumpet, right? They're coming over the hill. No, that's revelry. That's get up. I don't know what it is. So, but the point is this. Over the mountain, over the hill comes the cavalry. And you're like, woohoo. Now, I don't really know what it is about men on horses, but you're like, yes, right here they come. They can help us. And what Asaph is longing for is that kind of rescue for the... That's it, right there. Yeah, thank you, thank you. God bless you, Arnie, and God bless Google. All right, thanks, man. No, I still... Anyways, we got it, okay? Those of you listening online have no idea why it was so funny. In worship, too, somebody just looked up on their phone and played it for us, so that's what's going on over here. We're trying to have church, but someone's got their iPhone out, so... Helping the pastor with an iPhone app. We got an app for that, so. So, the point of all of that is this. That in certain moments, you long for that sound that I can't remember, that Google knows, for God to come and rescue his people. In the midst of waiting seasons, it is though the people of God have the authority and the power to call out to God and say, would you come? Would you help us? Listen, friends, the reason why Psalm 83 is so important is because there are a lot of moments in your lifetime when you're going to have to wait on God. And I don't want you to confuse waiting on God and saying nothing as if that's somehow more spiritual than waiting on God and saying things like, would you come and help me? Waiting on God means that in the middle of your waiting, you're crying out to him and saying, would you help me? Would you come? Would you deliver us? God, this is hard. That's spiritual waiting. More than some sort of morbid, fatalistic silence where you just are bearing sort of the, the, the burden of this in absolute silence. Waiting for God involves a rugged wrestling and an asking for God to act. And this is what Asaph does. He says, oh God, do not keep silent. The ache of his heart. He lives in a culture. He's scared. He's fearful. And this is why, again, why we love the Psalms. Because for some of you, you need Psalm 83 because it puts voice to what's going on inside of your soul. You look around at what's happening in your family, look at your kids, you look at culture, look at your extended family, look at your friends, you look at our nation, look at the globe, and you're just like, what in the world? And Psalm 83 gives voice to this ache in your gut when you love the glory of God and you see how broken our world is. Now, There's a crisis that's going on, and this is why the psalm was written. We're not exactly told what happened, um, and it's a little bit of conjecture to try and figure out, but there is a very interesting parallel in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20 with a king named Jehoshaphat. Let me tell you what happened. 
King Jehoshaphat ruled over the nation of, Is- of, of Judah, the split between Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom. He was a spiritually minded reformer, a great king who battled against the cultural evils of Judah. He restored spiritual vitality and he led them into a season of spiritual renewal. However, in the middle of his reign, a crisis moment took place when he learned that there was an alliance of a number of nations who were surrounding Israel and Judah, and they were planning on attacking. When he learned this news, Jehoshaphat led his people to seek the Lord. He called for a sacred assembly in the city of Jerusalem, gathered as many people who would come, and there together they would seek the Lord together. Second Chronicles 20, verses 6 to 12, record his prayer. Listen to what he prayed. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Verse 10, And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. O God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And this next little verse should be underlined in your Bible. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Oh, I love that. Oh, if I could press that verse into your soul. Because it's nothing wrong with you saying, we don't know what to do. But most of us need to also get the second part of this sentence into our vocabulary. We don't know what to do. You've said that. But oh, to be like Jehoshaphat and say, but our eyes are on you. In the middle of this sacred assembly, a man named Jehaziel stood up and he prophesied that the Lord would deliver them. He said, this is 2 Chronicles 20.15, Don't be afraid and don't be dismayed of this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. 2 Chronicles 20.15 And then God did win the victory for them. I'll tell you how he did it in just a second. But if you were to look in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 21, you will see that the man who stood up, Jehaziel, was a Levite, one of the sons of Asaph. Some people think that he or someone in his family, in regards to this particular moment, wrote Psalm 83. The parallels between Psalm 83 and what happened there, there's a number of them. We don't know for sure, but the point is, is that over and over throughout Israel's history, there were crisis moments where God's people cried out to him for deliverance. And you know what happened with Jehoshaphat? It's a really great story. So they they went out to go to battle against uh, the folks that gathered against them, these folks from Moab and from from Ammon, and they they decided to go out worshiping. And so they lined up their forces. If you look at the story, they put the choir in front, (laughs) which was probably a bad day to be a singer. You're like, I didn't sign up for this. And so they, they, uh, they, you go out in front, you sing out there, just sing. It'll be fine, right? So you just start singing. So they go out and they start singing like the Lord's mercies are new every morning and talking about how God is, his faithfulness endures from all generation. And they sing and they sing and they sing. And, And so they go out to battle singing. And as they crest over top of the hill, they look down in the valley and there's all kinds of dead bodies. That over the night, God had won the victory for them. And it was an amazing victory. And it's a beautiful thing to think of God's people being led in praise and adoration of his name going into battle. So Psalm 83 is a 
a great psalm that helps to encourage our hearts in our moments of crisis. So let's first of all talk about the things that were on Asaph's heart when he wrote this. Verse 2, he says that, Lord, evil is growing. Look what he says. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have raised their heads. Meaning, God, evil seems like it's getting bigger. That there's a growing sense of evil. The drumbeat of evil all around him is getting louder and louder, and therefore Asaph is alarmed. He's not coming as God's informant, as if God were unaware of this growing issue. Rather, he's expressing his deep concern about the rise of evil that he sees. You ever felt like that? You ever watch the news and just go, oh my goodness, what in the world? Look at the newspaper and just realize evil seems at times to be growing more and more and more. And that's what's happening in the heart of Asaph. Secondly, it's not only that there's this contextual idea of evil in general, but it's also becoming very personal. Verse 3, they they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. In other words, God, this evil isn't just in general. This evil is becoming personal. It's threatening those who love and know God. That this is a deeply personal issue. He says, they consult together against your treasured ones. That means, God, your people are being assaulted by this evil. And Asaph knows that God cares for his children. And that is what makes his heart ache. He sees this growing threat of evil, and he sees God's care for his children. And he has a hard time reconciling. There's all this pain And yet you love your children. God, don't be silent. See, one of the things that we have to understand if God asks us to move into a season of waiting is living with this tension, a hard tension, of pain and providence. We're caught in the middle between pain that is beyond belief and divine sovereignty and providence that's beyond comprehension. In other words, God cares deeply for His people But his ways don't always make sense to us. So what do you do when you're caught between two worlds? Instead of being angry with God, you cry out to him and ask for him to act. You you acknowledge the reality of the difficulty in which you live. That God deeply cares for his people. His ways don't always make sense. And by expressing our hurt, we can at the same time put our hope in him. See, that's the beauty of the Psalms, is they express their hurt and their fear, but also put their hope in God. And those two things exist simultaneously in the human heart. So evil is growing, we are hurting. Here's the third one, the future looks scary. Asaph goes even further in verse 4, he talks about the plans. They say, come let us wipe them out as a nation, let the name of Israel be remembered no more. So the idea is not only that this evil is growing, that this is personal, but that there's a future that looks a little scary out there, God. Some things coming down the pike that just are are a little frightening. About 150 years after Jehoshaphat, there was another king named Hezekiah who faced a very similar issue with an impending invasion of a nation, except his problem was with the king of Assyria named Sennacherib. The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, sent a letter to Hezekiah and the people of Israel threatening them. And here's what he says. This is 2 Kings 19, verse 10. 
Here's the letter. He says, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? In fact, in the letter, he lists the other cities. What happened to that city and that city and that city and that city? All their gods. Loser God, loser God, loser God, loser God. We're Assyria. We're going to come in and we're going to kill all of you. So you better just simply surrender. That's the letter. Hezekiah takes the letter and I love this moment. He's the, he's the king, the weight of the world on his shoulders, a threat of a superpower just outside the city gates led spiritual reform in the city, and here's the defining moment. Hezekiah goes into the temple, and he takes the letter, I love this, and he lays it out before the Lord. You see this king bowing this letter, and here's what he prays. O Lord, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. You are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib. That's a very interesting thing to say, isn't it? Because God's eyes aren't closed. His ears aren't stopped. He sees, he knows. So why is Hezekiah saying this? Because what's going on inside of his heart is filled with fear and anxiety and worry. He sees the threat. This is real. And there he is before the Lord, crying out to him. He says, hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Then verse 19, and so now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord our God, alone. And that night, in the same way that God had delivered Jehoshaphat, God delivered Judah again. The angel of the Lord that evening killed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. And they began then to flee for their lives. And once again, even though the future looks scary, God moved and delivered them. Listen, friends, those stories are in your Bible for a reason. They're not just there so your kids have something to do while you're here in service or to to talk about in the next time that your kids go to Sunday school class. Those stories are in there to build your faith in God's ability to be God. For you to realize that the same God who who. Um, was blessed by the service of Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, who was moved to act based upon their prayers, is the same God who's ready to act on your behalf. Evil is growing, we're hurting, the future looks scary. Here's number four, and that is, God, we're overwhelmed. The final element of this crisis is just the sheer size of the opposition and what happens here is Asaph identifies that there are other nations that are teaming up. They're forming a covenant. See, it's not just bad that evil's happening and that it's personal and that the future looks scary, but there's a lot of people, God, who are lining up against us. There's this big troop, Lord. They're all over the place. He lists them, verses uh, 6 to 8. He says, for the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, the Moab and, Moab and the Hagrites and Gebel and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. So he lists all of these forces that have been lined up together. If you were to take a map and you were to plot out all of these nations, it would be pretty obvious that the nation of Judah, this little nation who God had blessed, was completely surrounded. You ever felt like that? Completely surrounded? Maybe not by the number of people, but by the sheer diversity of the bad things that are happening. 
someone's marriage is blown up in front of you, a friend has acknowledged he's got an addiction, you got somebody else who's just, just going off the deep end in terms of what they think about God. You get all these things, and or it just takes one, just your 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 son or daughter just abandons the faith or Suddenly their marriage starts to fall apart. you got this friend that you thought was really awesome, and suddenly now they're heading down a wrong path. It could be a, a number of things or just one really big thing. Those can be overwhelming moments, can't they? Where you just feel like, you know, I'm absolutely surrounded by evil. And, and, and sometimes it's good to be reminded that, that Jesus intended for us to be in the world but not of the world, but he intended, friends, for us to be in the world. That means that if you're surrounded by evil people, that's what he designed it to be. You're to be salt and light in the world. Part of your role is to be surrounded. So even though you're surrounded by evil, doesn't necessarily mean that God's off plan. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a veterinarian to figure out what happens when sheep go into wolves. Bad things happen. He says, I'm sending you out to be sheep in the midst of wolves. It reminds me of a... A moving scene in the miniseries Band of Brothers, a series about World War II. In the midst of this great battle, as the paratroopers were dropped behind enemy lines, Lieutenant George Rice warns Lieutenant Richard Winters, saying, you guys are going to be surrounded. Winters says to Rice, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. Just a difference of perspective. The reality is, we're supposed to be surrounded by evil. That's not surprising. And that's how the church of Jesus Christ has operated for thousands and thousands of years. So the question then is, what do you do? What do you say when things look bad? Psalm 83 is in our Bible because when things look bad, there's hope. Hope for God to glorify his own name. So here's the requests that Asaph lists. There's a number of them. There's five. The first is this. He prays, God, would you rescue us again? Look at verses 9 to 12. He says, Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Do those names sound familiar to you? Well, a couple of those countries maybe sound familiar, but some of those names, I'd heard them before, but so I went back and looked. So who's Oreb and Zeb and Zeba and Zalmunna? You know what they are? Those, those four names, Oreb, Zeb, Zeba, and Zalmunna, were all characters. They were all kings and leaders in the story of Gideon. They were all leaders of Midian. And what happened in Judges chapter 7 and 8 is that Midian, like a horde, descended upon Israel in order to defeat it. And Gideon, with a band of 300 soldiers, defeated them. This is a story where they're up in the mountains and they got their, their pitchers with candles in them. And they broke their, their pitchers and they held them up and said, For the sword of the Lord and Gideon! And then all the Midian lights below panicked because they thought each lamp represented a couple hundred Israelite troops. Little did they know that there was only 300 people up there. And as a result, they panicked, killed each other, and God won the day. I mean, it's a beautiful story. And then they chased down their kings and killed them. Beautiful in the sense, you know what I mean. So, um, <laughs> oh, it's really great. And, and so they chased them down and they killed them. And so what, what Asaph is praying here is, God, you, you showed up and we only had 300 people with Gideon. 
and the, the kings were, were, were made like dust for the ground. They put them in the ash heap. God, they were refuse. God, you can do this again. Meaning that God isn't saved by many or by few. God isn't saved, rather, by many or by few. And then Sisera. Some of you remember this from your growing up days. Although your teacher never flannel graphed this one, I guarantee you. So what happened was Sisera was a commander of the king of Canaan's armies. And in Judges 4, he fled from the battle uh, against Israel. And Israel was led um, by their judge named Barak. That's Barak in the Bible. And um, when uh, Sisera turned into a tent for rest and for refuge, he fell asleep. And then a woman took a tent peg while he was sleeping, put it on his temple, and drove it through his head and stuck him to the ground. So when Asaph is praying, he's like, Go get him, Lord! Like you did to the Midians, and, and, and like you did to Sisera. He's, he's saying, God, you aren't saved by few or by strong people. God, you've delivered Israel over and over and over, and you can do it again. It was very clear that God was the one who had won these victories. And so looking back, Asaph longs for God to move in ways that he did before. He wants God to rescue his people again. And so here is this man saying, God, would you do it again? You've done it before. Can you do it, please, God, again? Secondly, he longs for God to demonstrate and to show his power. Look at verses 13 to 15. He's just crying out to the Lord and longing for God to show up. Oh, my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. The idea is, God, make them like tumbleweeds, that when when you show up, the blast of the power of who you are will just blow them away. Blow them away, oh, Lord. And then verse 14, as fire consumes the forest and as flame sets the mountains ablaze. In other words, God, show them your power. Smoke them out. Make them run. That's what you do from a forest fire. You flee. And then verse 15. So you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. The idea are these people who have defied God's name are running away because of this tempest, this hurricane, this tornado that's coming after them. So the idea is God blow them away, smoke them out, and put them on the run, Lord. There is this longing for God to show up. And he says all of this not because he's afraid or mad. He says this because he is grieved that the wicked person thinks that he's greater than God. And what Asaph longs for is the moment for God to demonstrate who and what he is really like. It is the glory of God that motivates Asaph to write and to pray this way. And then third, notice verse 16, his desire is for conversion. So lest you think he's just like mad and looking for blood He's longing for the glory of God to be seen so that ultimately conversion could be, could happen. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may see, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Fill their faces with shame. Show them who they really are, God, so that they will then seek your face. He's, he's talking about conversion. What he longs for is for those who are evil, who are opposing God, to realize who they are, who God is, and then turn in faith to him, that they would seek his name. So the psalmist's real target is the glory of God through people turning to him. Think of what would happen today in our own country, or in our own, on our own planet, or just in our own city, if a widespread movement of conversion happened. Can I just tell you that the fastest way to change a culture 
is not to change the government. The fastest way to change the culture is to have thousands of people gloriously converted. When the heart changes, culture changes. And when thousands of people are gloriously converted, the the, the effect on the person, the home, the city, and the nation will be unbelievable in its scope and scale. And, And I just want you, if things get darker and darker in our own nation, I want you to pray more fervently for a widespread renewal movement that our nation has seen in other times and other spots throughout our world has seen where the entire culture was changed, not because things changed politically, but because something happened spiritually that ended up changing things culturally. That happened. And it could happen again. Imagine massive conversions. Richard Owen Roberts, a great historian on the subject of revival and renewal, was asked one time, what would be the sign or what would happen if revival happened in the United States? His answer was this, millions of church people would be saved. Imagine the church aflame with people genuine about their relationship with Jesus. It happened in the 1900s in Wales. A great revival swept over that, that little province in the country of Great Britain, estimated that 100,000 people received Christ. And the effect of that was stunning on culture. Colin Hansen has written a book called A God-Sized Vision. He's going to be here, by the way, as our speaker for Think 12 next year, talking about the subject of renewal and revival. He says this in his book about the effect on Wales. The effect on Welsh society was undeniable. Output from the coal mines famously slowed because the horses wouldn't move. Miners converted in the revival no longer kicked and swore at the horses. So the horses didn't know what to do. They were trained by cursing at them. And when men refused to curse, the horses refused to move and actually made coal production go down. Furthermore, judges closed their courtrooms with nothing to judge. There's stories of police departments folding up shop because no crimes had been committed. Now, this didn't last forever, but when conversion happens and men and women get right with God, the effects on culture are stunning. What our nation, what our city, what our world needs is an explosion of conversion so that Jesus Christ is exalted as Lord. And when that happens, you won't be able to stop cultural transformation. On the heels of talking about conversion, Asaph then also says, Lord, judge them. And notice that you have to have both in order to have a balanced view of of how the Bible presents the glory of God, that you need both conversion, the offering of salvation, and also the judgment that comes because of the fame of God's name. Verse 17, he says, Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. So he longs for God's name to be hallowed. Hear me, hell exists because God is holy. Hell is forever because of the extent of God's holiness and the depth of rebellion and sin. And Asaph, as he sees the evil in the world, as he sees what's around him, as he sees this looming threat, pleads for the conversion of those who would seek God's face, but also recognizes that there would also be potentially a coming judgment And then finally, verse 18, he gets to the heart of really what this psalm is all about, that God would exalt his own name, that you, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So here the psalm ends with Asaph's ultimate aim, his ultimate desire. He wants to see God exalted. 
And that is why his heart was aching in the first place. This is what happens when you love God's glory, when you see his glory, when you see how life could be. You want the expansion of God's rule and his reign. You want to be part of it. And that is why he prays this way. He longs for God's exclusive might and for God's power to be clearly known. He longs for the day when God will make everything right. And in conversion or in judgment, he longs for God's glory to be seen and known for all that it is. And so even though life is hard, even though darkness seems to be looming, Asaph yearns and prays for God to act. He knew that the silence of God did not mean that the last word had been spoken. So, here's what I would ask you. When hardship comes, when you look at our culture, when you see evil around you, what do you both see and also what do you say? Let me give you just five questions to ponder. The first is this, when you look at the world, do you see the brokenness of sin? God's put you in your neighborhood, he's put you in the place of work that you are in, he's going to put you uh, students back in school soon, he's put you in a world, and in that world that you're in, do you see the brokenness of sin? Do you see that that you're in the midst of a culture, you're to be in this world but not of this world, you're to realize that there's something beyond this that you're really living for, and you see this world through a lens of brokenness, not just old-fashioned, not just not traditional, but you see this world through this lens of it's broken. There are broken people, there are broken lives, and this isn't the way it's supposed to be, because that's how God wants us to see this world. It's a beautiful world, but it's a broken, beautiful world. And the question is, do do you live with this kind of eyesight that you spiritually discern the fact that we live in a very broken world? Secondly, do you love the glory of God such that it makes your heart ache? Meaning when you see the things that that are in this world and you you see the, the, the... the, the devolution of marriage, you see abortion, you see, I mean, just over the weekend, the passage of a new law in the state of New York to, to propose so-called gay marriage. And when you see that, are you just disgusted or does your heart ache? Is there a sense of you that something's wrong with this or is there just this sense of this is not the way it's supposed to be? Or... Or has culture so affected you that you just don't even see it anymore? Have you just become numb to it? Third, do you know the ultimate historical redemptive moment, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this moment, this this time that Jesus came, this has the power to change everything? And do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that that what our world needs more than anything else is a life-changing relationship with Jesus? Or is that just so simple that it just doesn't seem like that's the answer anymore? Or do you really believe if this person could just receive Christ, then everything could change? If this marriage could just have Christ in the middle of it? If our city would just understand the beauty of who Jesus is, then all these other things would fit and make sense? Do you see the power, the reality that Jesus said that a person could be completely born again? And do you believe that and trumpet that and love that and pray for that? We need Jesus. That's what we need. Is that what's going on inside your soul? Or are you just like, oh, this world's going to hell? Or do you really love Christ and believe he could change the world? And change your home and change your heart. 
And for those of you today searching, trying to figure out how to change what's going on on the inside, you can try all sorts of things. And the only thing that will work, because the real problem in your soul is not your people you live with, not the dynamics that you were raised in, not the circumstances of your life. Your real problem is your soul. And the only person who can fix your soul, hear me, is a person named Jesus. Fourth, do you pray with holy discontentment for God's name to be exalted around the world, our nation, in your family, with your friends, and in your own heart? Do you pray with a level of discontentment? God, would you come? Would you come? We need more of you. We need more of you. Or are you just happy with the same old, same old, same old? Trying to do the same thing over and over and over and seeing how evil seems to win. Or, or maybe there would be a renewed call that I could issue you today on a regular basis to call upon God to say, God, would you come? Would you do something like you've done before? Finally, do you long for God to act not only to rescue you and to change your circumstances, but more importantly, because of the glory and the fame of his name? At the end of the day, beloved, what's at stake here is not just you being rescued from your circumstances or you being delivered from the pain that's going on, but because you want God to be glorified and to be honored in your life and in our world. And you love the glory of God to such an extent that you so long for that to be displayed. You see, Psalm 83 is a song for a season of silence, a moment when you are painfully pondering how long God will allow the brokenness of life to continue. There's some of you here today, no doubt, that the pain of sin's effects on your life is so real that you wonder how in the world you could possibly live another week, another day, for that matter, another month or another year with the kind of dynamics that are bringing a crushing element to your soul. And to those of you in this position, I would point you to Revelation 21 that Jesus promises that this day will come. A day where he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning or crying nor pain for the former things have passed away and Jesus promises that one day he will make it all right and until then with an aching heart and yet with an upward focused prayer we say, come, oh Lord Jesus, would you come? Come and take what is broken and make it right. That's what you say when life gets really hard. So Lord Jesus, today we come, we ask you fresh and anew to increase our faith in your ability to transform a heart, a family, a neighborhood, a city, a nation, a world. We long for your glory to be seen in places that your name isn't even named. We long for your glory to be seen and felt in regions of our country that saw amazing and powerful works of God. We long to be a generation in which you worked in in a mighty and powerful way. We long to see, to taste, and to behold the beauty of when you pour out a fresh movement of conviction, repentance, and renewal. Oh, Lord, what we need personally, what we need corporately, what we need nationally is a heart change. And, Lord, we ache for it like the psalmist does. We see evil rising. We see problems all around. And yet we know, God, you've done it before. We ask you to do it in faith again. We ask you in faith to come, Lord Jesus. And as long as you tarry, 
we commit ourselves to being faithful, persevering folks who keep their eyes on the cross, our finger in the book, and our prayers, Lord, we're going to offer to you in faith, believing that you hear and act. And so we ask again, Lord, don't be silent. Come and help us. And we pray this in the powerful name of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.